God's community gathered together and created your word preached. Help us help Gary to see you teach us from your word. Uh, help us to be alert and fit all we can out of it. Um, please help uh, everyone here to uh, pay attention and to not be distracted. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so after having uh, heard the word of God uh, a lot, the people are confessing their sins, and here's a prayer that they pray, and the beginning of the prayer is praising God for his role in creation, talking about what God did uh, for Abraham. You know, it's kind of reviewing a little bit about the history, uh, bringing them up to the present time, and that history largely uh, revolves around the things the Lord has done for his people. And to just uh, constantly caring for them and blessing them in so many different ways. So would somebody read in Nehemiah chapter 9, from verses 9 to 15. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself, as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep, as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and told them to go in and possess the land which you had sworn to give them. Alright, in 9-11, through 11, he's dealing with what basic event? The Exodus. The Exodus. Now look at the specific things the Lord did for them at the Exodus. In verse 9, what did God do basically? Heard their cry. He heard their cry. He answered their prayers. In verse 10, what did God do? Showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. The signs and wonders were for what purpose? What? So they believe, but not just so they believe. Yeah, who was Pharaoh to them? Their master. Their master and their enemy. And so God uh, defeated their enemies. And then in verse 11, look at what he did. What did he do? Part of the Red Sea. Yeah. And as he parted the Red Sea, what did that enable the Israelites to do? And therefore to escape. They were delivered. They were redeemed. What happened to Pharaoh and his army? Yeah, that was not so good for them. So God, just in a very spectacular way, delivered them from oppression at this time of the Exodus. And, of course, from, the, from Egypt... They went into where? The wilderness. And look at what God did for them there. In verse 12, what did he do? Yeah, he led them. He guided them with the, the cloud and the fire. And then in verse 13 and 14, what did he do for them? 
gave them the ordinances, laws, statutes, commandments, Sabbath, commandments, statutes, law. What? That kind of stinks, doesn't it? That he gave them all these laws and rules and regulations. Is that the way that he's looking at this as kind of a downer that he gave these things to them? No. How is he seeing these things? In faithfulness. Yeah, this is a blessing. There are so many good things that God gives us through his laws and commandments. For one thing, um, if, you were, uh, if you were in a, a very volatile nuclear power plant, would you like it if there were some signs posted telling you where you should go and where you shouldn't and what you could touch and what you couldn't and things like that? That would actually be a real blessing. <laughs> you want as much, uh, you know, rules there to guide you as possible, plus the fact that God's laws and commandments are not just to keep us away from danger, they're really to guide us in the direction of the best results. I mean, it's like, uh, you know... A lot of you guys play, uh, play computer games, video games, right? I know nothing about that stuff. But I would assume that in some games you like to get information from other gamers that give you hints and suggestions as to what to do and not to do in order to progress in the game. Isn't that true? Is that a negative thing when somebody tells you, well, now, you can't do this, and you're better off doing that? No, it's actually a blessing. It'll get you more quickly to the next level or to whatever you're trying to do in that. So this was God's blessing. This was a gift that he gave them all these rules and regulations. And then in verse 15, what did he do for them? What did he give them? Yeah, he fed them. So he gave the material provision. I mean, you can just take the verb give. It's used over a dozen times in this chapter. God was just giving, 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 giving. Because he loved them and he wanted to bless them. So you just think about from the time of Abraham right on through the Exodus and the wilderness. And on up to the, the promised land that they're about to conquer. You know, God was giving so much to them. He was such a blessing. This is what they're praying. They're just rehearsing in their prayer up to this point all the great things that God has generously done for them. Questions and comments on this section. Well, how do they respond to that? 16 to 25. They acted proudly. Okay. Somebody want to read 16 to 25? But they, but they and our fathers acted proudly. Thank <laughs> you. 
Wow, this is quite a statement. <clears throat> now, he's talking about, that. they're talking about their fathers, their, their ancestors. But the attitude they're saying this in is not the attitude of, boy, they sure were bad, I'm, we're glad we're not like they are, but more or less recounting them as sort of being the pattern for the way they are too. You know, seeing this as sort of being the repeated pattern of their whole history that they have continued right on up to the present time. But look at how bad it was. You know, God had delivered them from Egypt, led them through the promised land, but how did they respond? With what attitude in verse 16? With primarians. Now look back at verse 10. What attitude had Pharaoh had? Have the same attitude he had. That, that stinks. God was punishing Pharaoh, delivering them from Pharaoh because of his arrogance, and then they treat God the same way. And what else in verse 16? They were what? Dobrin, and they wouldn't listen. And they didn't, what, in 17? They didn't obey, they didn't remember. They wanted to go back to Egypt. That's how grateful they were for God's deliverance. They wanted to go back under bondage. You remember that a few times, don't you, in the, the wilderness wandering? Even though God was such a great, wonderful, merciful God. In fact, what did they do in verse 18? Yeah, which was kind of the low point of their rebellion against God. Just very disgusting and sad that they acted like that. Uh, you appreciate the fact that, that they are not just saying, well, they sinned. They are giving in detail the, the things that were wrong, the bad attitudes, the bad heart they had. What would you do if, if, if you were God and you were dealing with a people like this? Hard to imagine. What could be a punishment bad enough for people who are this ungrateful for all that you've done? How did God treat them in verse 19? With compassion. With compassion. How is God compassionate toward people like this? God's mercy and patience and grace is just unbelievable. God's wrath, I think, is very easy to understand. You know, wow, why wouldn't he be wrathful? Why wouldn't he punish when you consider all he's done and how we've responded? What's hard to understand is his grace and mercy and his patience. Wow, that, that's what's just incredible in this story. 
And so what does he do for them? Well, in verse 19, he's continuing to guide them. In verse 20, he's continuing to feed them and water them. In verse 21, they, they were even, what, what happened to them? What, what didn't happen to them in their wandering in the wilderness? Yeah, their clothes didn't even wear out. That's pretty amazing. Forty years wandering and you can wear the same clothes they haven't worn out. Their feet don't swell. He provides them with physical stamina. He gives them military success most recently when they, uh, or the, the, the latest things uh, uh, as they're coming up on the right-hand side of the Jordan River as they conquer the kingdoms of Sihon and Og. God gives them, uh, multiplies their, their descendants. He brings them into the land and conquers the peoples. And, and they're able to possess this land flowing with milk and honey. Wow. That's what God did for people who were so prideful and rebellious and stubborn and ungrateful as what they were. That's what they're telling God in this prayer. They're remembering their unfaithfulness and God's graciousness. Comments or questions? Um, isn't there kind of a switch in generation, though, in the middle of that? Because there's a generation that came out, and then only two of the people that experienced you know, those particular blessings and mercies of God, the rest of them died in the wilderness, and then there was the generation that went in. Certainly. Yes, we're just kind of starting with leaving Egypt, and now we're making time progress. So we're not necessarily looking at just one generation, that's for sure. We're looking at the continuing history of their forefathers, and we're going to continue to go throughout history in the next section. Other thoughts? I have about 26 to 31. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them, to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocation. Therefore you delivered them into the hands of their enemies, who oppressed them, and in their time of their trouble when they cried to you, you heard them from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did again evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hands of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them. That you might bring them back to your law. Yet they, added, <coughs> yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgment. Which, if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Isn't that amazing? I mean, after all God had done, in spite their rebellious ingratitude, what did they do in 26? They disobeyed, they rebelled, they, they just discarded the law, and then to top that off, what did they do? Killed his prophets. Why would you kill the prophets? We're telling you to stop doing that. Yeah, they ignored what God did say, and then they took steps to try to ensure they wouldn't have to hear it anymore. Isn't that 
wow, that's just, that's just such an affront. That's just, it's just hard to imagine. He, God is sending the prophets to bless them with his word. They just, they just kill them because they don't want to listen to God's word. Every act of love on God's part is matched by an act of disloyalty on the part of the people. It's just ridiculous. And so what did God do to them in 27? Yeah, he delivered them into the hand of their oppressors. But what did they do? And what did God do? Gave them deliverers. We call those deliverers what? Judges. Judges. Remember how many times that cycle was repeated in the book of Judges? And uh, But as soon as they had rest in verse 28, what did they do? Sinned again. They sinned again, therefore God did what? Delivered them into oppressors. And then what did they do again? They cried out, and what did God do over and over again? Wow. Would you ever get tired of that if you were God? I mean, wow. It's like, what does it sound like they're doing with God? Using Him. Exactly. They're just using Him, aren't they? Every time they get in trouble, they cry out to Him. As soon as He delivers them, they go back to rebelling against Him again. Has anybody ever tried to use you like that? Do you eventually get tired of that? Does it take very long to get tired of that? You know, wow. It, God's mercy is just almost unbelievable. Once you start looking at it this way, it's just incredible that God kept delivering them. God is so generous and so merciful, and they were so ungrateful and so unfaithful. They, it seems like they only realized they needed God when they were oppressed. And as soon as the oppression was lifted, they didn't think they needed Him anymore. And so, in verse 29, you see that cycle again, and 30, and 31. And, and it just continues. In verse 31, nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. And even when God took them into captivity, He still didn't wipe them out. He was still merciful and gracious and compassionate. That is just amazing. How should we respond to a God who is this gracious and merciful? Man, we ought to be so thankful. We ought to be so much wanting to honor Him and to live for Him, and to love Him, and to trust Him. It is just unbelievable the grace God has for people who don't deserve it. That is the definition of grace, isn't it? You know, I mean, you remember that parable of the prodigal son? Remember what that, that young man did that was so outrageous? What's the first thing he did that was outrageous? Well, even before he wasted the money, he asked for it. He asked for it. When do you normally get an inheritance? And so it's almost like that young man was saying, "Well, since you won't do me the uh, courtesy of dying, will you at least give me what I get if I if if you did die?" You know. So he gets an early 
installment of the inheritance, and then where does he go? Distant land. What do I distant land? Yeah, he wanted to be as far away as his, from his father as he could be. And he goes and he just parties it up and he just wastes all that money living any way he wants to. And then he gets down and out. And then the, no, no surprise that the famine occurs just about the time he runs out of money. And, uh, and then where does he want to go? Back home. What would you have said if you'd have been the father? Not under my roof. You didn't want me? That's the end of the line, bud. You know, you had your chance. That's not what this father does. What, how did, when, when the son is coming back, having gotten, really, probably not as bad a punishment in the pig pen as what he really deserved, when he's coming back, without shoes, probably smelled really bad, and had nothing, Nothing of all he'd taken from his father. How did his father feel toward him? Yeah, what's the word in the text, you know? Compassion. He had compassion. He felt sorry for him. How do you feel sorry for a son who's done this? And he runs and hugs and kisses him and throws a party for him and all that. That's a picture of how our God loves us. That is the amazing story of the Bible that doesn't make sense. Why would God love us under these circumstances? So there's just a lot to think about in this passage. Uh, it's really encouraging. But wow, for these guys, it's like they're really confessing how their whole history, their whole people, have just always been so ungrateful and so rebellious and just, just <clears throat> pathetic. Comments and questions at this point. Jerry L. to tell God that uh, their forefathers had done all of this. Um, but you see that they go through this whole entire prayer of their lives, and most of it is where the children of Israel mess up. And how many times do, when, when we pray, do we 
tell God what we've done wrong like this, or do we just uh, uh, ask Him for things and praise Him and stuff like that? Great point. It's embarrassing and shameful, and the way they put this makes it even more shameful. We so often want to minimize our guilt. I doubt that any of you will remember this. But at this camp, probably five years ago, when it was at Camp Clark, I remember in a group of young people that were just talking about uh, things they wanted people to pray for, and many of them confessing their sins and so forth. A couple of you were in there. But one young man, and I thought about this often since then, he said, my little sister is just so good to me. And she's just good to everybody. She, and he just starts telling about, she'd just do anything for you. She always just wanted to serve. She just wanted to help. She was so sweet and so kind. And he said, and I just treat her horribly. Now, I, that really made an impression on me when he said that. Because I thought, you know, he could have said, I need you to pray for me to treat my little sister better. But he didn't say, I need you to pray for me to treat my little sister better. He told us how wonderful she was to then say, and I treat her terribly. That was a much better confession. That was much more honest and humble and genuine. I wonder when we pray to God, if we're just saying, uh, God, um, I'm sorry, I, I lied again. And I, I use your name in vain. And, you know, I, but, but just really dry. Just really no context. Just really... You know, trying to blurt it out. You ever apologize to somebody and you do it that way? It's like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't treat you that way. You know, you just got to try to get it out as fast as you can and kind of distance yourself from it. Because you don't want to really have to acknowledge fully what, what you did. We need more of this spirit. I mean, it, it's a lot worse what they did in view of all that God had done. And they put it in that context. So that's a good point. So I certainly agree that we need to uh, spend more time in prayer focusing on just how uh, telling God how, ba how bad we feel our screen was and going into detail about what exactly we did. Um, and there's another aspect to this though. I mean, it's the whole history of sin. Do you feel it's important for us to Go back and remember old sins we've committed and already asked for forgiveness for, or do we seem to focus on current sins just be more than Great question. I think my answer would be to say we in Christ have absolute and full forgiveness. So we do not bear the guilt of sins we've turned away from. However, Paul remembered his sins and it humbled him. I don't think it made him feel um, guilty or like he was carrying the burden of them. But I think remembering the grace that God has had in the forgiveness he's given, even of specific sins, would be helpful to us. I think it was to Paul. I mean, he continued to remember to where he was more grateful to the Lord. And, 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 and sensed how, how wonderful the Lord had been to him in forgiving him of all the terrible things he'd done. 
So I think there's a sense in which remembering that is helpful, as long as it's not a guilty remembrance where we still feel like God's holding those things against us. Thoughts on that? Other thoughts? Yes. Don. In 2 Yes. Absolutely. Good. The excellent passage. Thank you. Very helpful. Jay. Can you just talk for a moment about the difference between like good ways to feel bad for sin and bad ways to feel bad for sin? We look at sin in terms of our personal relationship with God, and we think about what it's done to the Lord, and so forth. But we turn to the Lord with confidence in His mercy and compassion, with gratitude, with humility, a broken and a contrite spirit, but with trust that He forgives, and He takes away that burden, and He wipes that out, and He makes us white again. So I don't know, I mean, you may have something specific you want to say about that, but John? Well, I was just going to say, trying to even begin to comprehend God's love, we have to remember that he, he exhibited all his love, knowing future as if it was history. Yes. He down the street and know they were going to walk away. And if we were married and knew our wife was going to cheat on us in five years, what would he be doing right now to withhold the kindness from her? <laughs> I wasn't doing that way at all. Absolutely. Yeah, you're exactly right. God really deals with this in real time. He does not pre-punish as we probably would. Yeah, good points. Look at as he continues here, 32 to 37. Now therefore, O God, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you were just you were just in all that you were just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wick- wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law. Or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with, with which you had admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness, which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and, and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings, whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. What is the distress that they were in? We understand. They were, they were slaves. How were they slaves? To their own sinful self. Not just that. In the land that God originally gave them? Yes. They, they had been in captivity. 
They had come back from captivity, but they were still under Persian rule. The Persians were still governing them. They did not have independence. And so all the rich provisions of this land flowing with milk and honey were being heavily taxed by the Persian government. They are begging God for mercy and compassion in spite of the fact they don't deserve it because of their sins, because of their great suffering in view of their being under Persian rule. And so that's what they're begging for in this prayer as they conclude, not because they deserve it. They've been very clear about the fact they don't deserve it. They have sinned, their forefathers have sinned, but they're asking God to be generous and merciful again and to give them freedom, to give them the opportunity to enjoy the blessings of the land he's brought them back to. I assume that it's okay hearing me still in the back. You okay with that? Okay. Yes. Okay. I may come over here a little bit more. Are you hearing me okay over there? Okay. Um, it's always difficult in a large building like this to know how far your sound is going. But I would say it's very unlikely I'm going to hear you. <laughs> At my age, my earsight is not too good. So, uh. <laughs> but if you have a voice that projects, if you have a question or comment, you're welcome to offer. All right, now I want you to look at something here in the text. Look at Nehemiah chapter 10, and look at like the first 27 verses. Does that look like fascinating reading to you? <laughs> Well, actually it is. Do you know what those 27 verses are? They're names. They're the names of who? People who placed a seal on the document. Yes. This is really awesome. In verse 38, Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Melchijah, and so forth and so on. These are people who, they, these are the signatures on this document. This is the conclusion to their prayer. They have recognized in their prayer their failures. And so they are making a, a document in writing publicly to change. And they are signing their name on the document and saying, we will make these specific changes. And we're going to see eventually, in the end of chapter 10, exactly what they commit to. And they are very specific changes in the areas where they have been failing. Now, I love this. I think it's so helpful. Because, well, for one thing, it's a commitment. You know, it's sometimes hard to make commitments, especially specific ones. We would rather say, you know, I'm going to try to do a little better. That doesn't commit us to much. 
to make a specific statement, we will do this, and we will do that, and we won't do this, is much stronger, and, and it's, it's hard to make. But if we're going to serve God, it's got to be more than just general principles. So much is lost when we are indefinite. You know, maybe you leave this camp saying, I need to read the Bible more. Well, frankly, you could have come into the camp saying that. Maybe you even say, I'm going to try to read the Bible some more. Well, what's the weakness of that? A, I'm going to try. It's kind of a weasel word for us. I mean, how are you going to know whether you tried to or not? <laughs> you know, I guess you could always say, I tried to. <laughs> but, but that doesn't say you're going to do anything. I'm just going to try. And then more. Well, more than what? More means what? I have found myself much more successful in making changes in my life when I've made them specific and definite and committed myself to them. When I say, I will do this, and I've got it nailed down, to me, it's much more effective. I appreciate the fact they were willing to do this. I appreciate the fact that it's public. You know, okay, so you make a personal commitment to God. That's helpful. Better, though, if you make it in front of other people. If you say to various people, here's what I'm going to do. You hold me accountable. You ask me next week if I'm doing it. And it's helpful that it's in writing, I think. I think it's helpful in writing for one thing, the things we write down, we give more weight to. You know, because it takes effort to write it down. When you write something down, you can see it. It's actually there. You know, it's in writing, it's on paper, or on your iPad, or whatever it is, but it's there, you can see it. It's one of the blessings, in my judgment, of things like texting. There's some limitations to it, but one of the cool things is, it's there. It's got some weight to it, because you can go back and look at it, and it's right there, black and white, there it is, you wrote it. So, this public, specific commitment in writing to make these changes. I think that's an excellent model for us in making changes. If you're leaving this camp wanting to change some things, think about this. Mitchell. Um, I went to a solution the end of the on smartphones, and it was an acronym that was uh, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. So, like, if you were to want to revive one, as you said, uh, your timely community, oh, well, um, Yeah, if we were doing something for Bible reading, let me give you a couple suggestions. I, I would suggest coming up with something specific in terms of how much I am going to read Philippians every day. 
where in terms of how often, five days a week, six days a week, sometimes it's helpful to have not every day of the week as in terms of keeping it. Um, and uh, how well I'm going to read it carefully, I'm going to read it out loud, um, or something like that. For how long I'm going to read it for till uh, September the 21st, this is August the 21st, or whatever. The more definite, specific, concrete it is, the better. Because here's what, there's so many ways to paralyze yourself. If you say, I'm going to read the Bible an hour a day, well, what does it mean to read the Bible? What are you going to read? The Bible's a big book. And so, well, I don't know. Do I want to read this? Do I want to read? I don't know where I want to read. Make it specific. Just say, here's what I'm going to read. That way you know exactly what you committed to. If you make it indefinite for how long? Well, when have I finally fulfilled it? Am I saying for the rest of my life? You probably don't want to make a commitment for the rest of your life on, you know, reading the book of Philippians every day. That may, uh, there's some other things to read. So make it a specific time period. I think, try and make it something that challenges you, but something that you can do. Saying, I'm going to read the Bible for 12 hours a day, seven days a week, is not realistic. There are some other things God wants you to do besides reading the Bible. So do something that will challenge you, but that you can attain to. Not something that, well, that's a great dream, but you won't do it. Those are some suggestions. I really do think it's very helpful. I've liked this passage a lot in terms of, of the specific nature, the written nature, the public nature. I think that really helps. The commitment that we make. Thoughts and comments? Yes, no. And you say don't do something unrealistic because we can always work up to something bigger and better. But if we start too big when we first start out, then we're not going to do really anything. Yes, it would be helpful if we made a goal we'll keep. <laughs> yes, exactly. John. I like that in chapter 9, it starts off with your prayer to God and a commitment to God. And then they all sign the agreement. And so it's really more of a commitment to God and then having some other people who will keep you accountable to that Good point. Yeah, great. Other thoughts? There. So, is this prayer like a preface or a prelude document, or is this prayer in the document, or how do we... I would consider it a preface. That's the way I would see it. And I would see the document as starting with the signees, and then the rest of chapter 10 are the specifics of what they commit to. I don't know. Other thoughts are coming. All right, well, our time's really up tonight, so in the morning we will try to look at the specifics of that document and uh, then go on from there. Appreciate your attention and your comments. Thank you. Thank you.